Beloved of God, called to be saints, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you now and evermore. Amen. the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 16, we read, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. God lives in him. This morning I want to talk to you about three things. God, you, and love. And the first of these is God. I don't know what you think of when you think about God. I guess everyone has some idea. Turning to Webster, we discover that generally when we use the term God, we think of one who rules, who is sovereign, who decides what is going to happen. In fact, he does as he pleases. For that's who God is. He's not accountable to anyone. His will becomes law. And there are no conditions attached. And no one can coerce him or judge him. For if that were true, then he wouldn't be God. Someone would be greater than he is. And yet I hear people say from time to time, well, that's not the kind of God I believe in. And probably they're referring to some of the, the very difficult circumstances of life, the suffering in the world, the earthquakes, the famines, natural disasters, 
That isn't the kind of God I believe in, some God who would be God in a world like this. But God is, is God. I remember being in the Soviet Union the first time, and the KGB was there, and, and I was rather uncomfortable, I have to admit. And if I had said when I was there, well, this isn't the kind of government I believe in, someone would have said, well, that's too bad. I don't know what you believe in, but whatever it is, if it isn't this government, you're wrong because you are under this government as long as you are in this country. And if we say that isn't the kind of God we believe in, we have one of three alternatives, it seems to me. Either we're saying everyone has their idea of what God ought to be, and because there really isn't any God, it doesn't make any difference. So you can have your opinion and I will have mine. Or secondly, perchance there is a God who is removed. He's created all things, but he's off in the heavens somewhere, and he's not connected to us. There's no involvement in the processes of history, certainly not in our individual lives. And therefore, it doesn't make much difference what you think about him. Or thirdly, there is a God who is described in the scriptures, and it's the God who is an eternal being beyond our little time and space concepts, and it really doesn't make any difference what you think about him. It is what he is that counts. And so we try to understand objectively who God is and what it is that, that makes him God and makes him the way he is. And in his own sovereignty, he has his own qualities, and the supreme quality is love. Of all the choices and all the things you would think about, here is a God who is love. And as you trace his activities throughout the scripture, you find from the very beginning in love, he nurtured those first two parents in a marvelous garden of Eden. And when they stumbled into sin and rebelled against him, it was love that motivated him to promise a way out for them. And that in time he would send someone to crush the head of the evil one. And then we see that golden thread running through all of redemptive history. How finally, because of his love, he came himself incarnate. Jesus of Nazareth, and he gave himself. He is love. And that's the love that we've received as he offers us forgiveness and a destiny and peace in our hearts. God is love. Jesus, the incarnation of who God is, compelled those fishermen because of his loving authority to follow him. And he didn't ask them what, he, what they thought about God or anything else. He just said, follow me. Because the God who loves us says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Nobody else could say that.
You cannot and I cannot. But the God who is love can say that. Because he is God and because he is love, loving him is keeping commandments that are born out of love for our welfare. And what a wonderful thing to know how to live. Because someone who loves us, who created all of this vast universe, has revealed to us what is right and what is wrong. And what folly to go against that will. And so we each have our calling. Like Eric Liddell, you remember Chariots of Fire, 1924 Olympics in Paris, he wouldn't run on Sunday because he didn't feel it was right. They tried to dissuade him and a, a British authority said, what a shame we can't change his mind. The coach said, no, it's a blessing we can't change his mind because that would have severed him from the very source of the strength that he has to run the way he does. Obedience, as we understand his word for us. Obedience to the one who loves us and gave himself for us. So when Paul comes to write, he writes about all the beauties of the work of Christ, all his redemptive work, great statements like Romans 5 verse 1, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Great doctrines in the scriptures, but when it all is summarized, he tells us not that faith is the greatest or that hope is the greatest, but that love is the greatest. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we catch a glimpse of the character of God, the one who suffers long with us and is kind, and the one who keeps no records of past wrongdoings, the one who is always faithful and, and is always there the one who is willing to sacrifice. Remember John? He was writing for those Gnostics, as we call them, the ancient people who, like the Greeks, thought in terms of wisdom. And they thought that God is the wise one, that his mind is all transcending. And so John begins his book, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. But when he comes to describe God, what does he say? He says, God is love. He repeats it over and over in those letters to the churches. That God can dwell in us by the marvel of his spirit. And we walk in his steps. Who is God? One who is love. And as you think about that, think about yourself. You and God. God in you. What does that mean? 
Well, John says in this text that God is love and you who live in love live in God and he lives in you. That means that that same love that was in Jesus and is in God himself also lives in you. That's the evidence of it. And he says in this chapter that if we say we love but we do not love, then the truth isn't in us. Because loving doesn't come by claiming it. Loving comes with an attitude and with action. We cannot live without it. It's always been thrilling to me as a preacher to be able to to preach these great truths is the fact that when God speaks, somehow in the mystery of the Godhead and his, his eternal wisdom, he lays his finger right on the central core of the things that we are concerned about, like love. There's nothing in the world that we need like love. For without it, we wither and perish. It takes its toll in our life. We feel useless and helpless. We're limited as to who we are and what our destiny is all about. Why should we exist at all without love? And we scramble for it. But we do not understand it too well. In fact, it doesn't come naturally, does it? You and I are not natural lovers. We are natural claimers. We want others to love. We love to have God love, but it comes very difficult to us to do what God did. And yet without love, we cannot exist healthily and wholly. The late Carl Menninger was walking through his great hospital in Topeka. Suddenly a thought struck him. Why are all these people here? What, what brought them here in the first place? And he thought of how they were treating them. They were trying to explain to them why they were in the condition they were in. They were proceeding by analysis and information. And he said, what if these people are here because they have not been loved? And so he called his staff together. And he said to them, we've been giving these people understanding when what they need perhaps is love. So from the highest psychiatrist down to the gardener, all of us are going to treat people in love. If you go into a room to change a light bulb, do it with a love contact. And they did. And in six months, they had reduced the time that these patients spent in the hospital by 50%. 
they fulfilled what was found out also in the Bellevue Hospital in New York. For people are always in need of love, whether they're infants or adults. For there they were losing little children, and they discovered that if they brought surrogate lovers to these children to rock them and love them and care for them, you've probably heard the story a hundred times. But it never quite touches home unless we think of the need of love. We search for it today, do we not? There's a novel written by Walker Percy called The Second Coming. And it's about a heroine named Allison who goes to the library because she wants to know what love is. It's an ache deep within her heart. And so she gets the books out, and she begins to read. And this is what she read, in part. She reads, love begets love. Love ends with hope. Love is a flame to burn out human ills. Love is all truth. Love is blind. Love is the best. Love is love's reward. Finally, she exclaims, these people are crazier than I am. All kinds of nice phrases that really mean nothing. And when Dr. Willard Galen, the psychiatrist of the, the Hastings Center on the Hudson in New York, read this book, he thought, I need to know more about love. The search going on today and he started by listening for three weeks to primetime television, every single night, seven days a week. And after he listened, he came to these conclusions. He said, the intrigue of sex and romance has little to do with real love. The act of loving is not high drama. It is so woven into the fabric of our being that it is often undefinable. That's perceptive, isn't it? It's woven into the fabric of our being. Christ didn't talk about love all the time. He loved. And you couldn't meet him without feeling it and sensing it as he reached out to people. And as he finally gave himself on a cross while praying, Father, forgive them. Love is something that that grips us as a whole being. And we express it in the way we deal with other people. And we become a blessing. As God is such a blessing to us, we are his people. The vehicles by which he, he enters this human race in every generation and in every nation and culture. And therein lies the problem. We Christian people do not love naturally. We love the fact that God loves. And one of the big things today is to get our needs met. By whom? By God. What for? Because we have a need, that's what for. Is that love? It's his love. Is it, his, uh, is it our love? Look what the text says. God is love. He who loves, 
lives in God and God in him. Conversely, he who does not love has no part in what God is doing in this world, in this decade. And that's a difficult thing to hear, isn't it? For most of us are not concerned so much about anyone else as ourselves. We're trained to think of our rights. Dr. Menninger said, love is the medicine for the sickness of the world. And if you and I are going to be part of the cure, love is the medicine, dear friends. We walk where our Lord walks, and people see him through us. Because this world needs love. Internationally, And very personally, it needs love. Selfishness only produces hell. He who loves has God living in him. For God is love. What does this mean? Well, it means that we give ourselves, doesn't it? Paul tried to explain this to the Romans. He wrote in the fifth chapter, God demonstrated his love to us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how it is with love. You think of others first. God didn't bring his children, his image bearers into the world and then abandon them when they sinned or when it was inconvenient for them or when he had other things on his agenda. And I suppose I ought to say something that would be politically incorrect today. And that is that we Christians need to think about what we're doing with our children as we give more of our time to pursuing other things in this world, including perhaps careers. In some cases it's necessary, I understand, but in some cases the choice is bad and the children will remember it. And they'll not see the love that we see in Christ. Christians need to love like God loves, and that's costly. But it's the only way you can define it. Love is patient. Love waits and prays. Love accepts and is forgiving. Love doesn't keep a list of wrongs and of rights. It becomes a very simple matter for many of us in just caring for someone who's placed in our lives mysteriously by the providence of God. Reminds me of the nurse that told E. Stanley Jones in Sweden about the incident she had. Being the newest one in the, the convalescent hospital, she was assigned to this old lady who sat in her rocker all day and hadn't spoken a word in three years. 
The young nurse said, if my Christianity is any good at all, then it's got to be good enough for me to love this woman. So she pulled up a rocker and sat down and rocked with her. Three days later, the woman opened her eyes and looked at her and smiled and said, you're very kind. And a month later, the woman left the hospital and went home, well and strong and healthy. Somebody loved her. That somebody is the Spirit of God in a Christian, and this world is crying for it. And the only one to love isn't God, but it's also his people. For God is love, and those who love, God dwells in them. Dear friends, what it takes to live in this world is love. The love that moved God to send his only son who gave himself for us all. Let us pray. Lord our God, we bow before you. We long to be obedient. We find it distressingly difficult. We want to love, but we find ourselves pursuing our own interests too often. Break our hearts that we may understand what it means to serve as you have served, to sacrifice as you have sacrificed. And may your people become instrumental in changing this world so that all of us may find peace and joy in an everlasting home. Amen.